It's a great day, and we're getting some summer sunshine. That's, that's good, except in the mornings. We'll take it, won't we? All right, let's go to the Gospel of John, Chapter 2. Let me tell you about John. I mean, stuff I've said before, but I need to say again. I want to tell you about the structure of the book. This book, we are told at the end, John tells us at the end, I have written this so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Savior of the world. He crafts his book around seven signs. Still COVID. That's seven, not that. Seven signs that uh, all a sign is, in the Greek, it is a semaya. Uh, it indicates that he is, a sign is a miracle that carries a huge message on its back like a camel. Jesus performed many of these wonders, and John says, if they were told in hyperbole, the whole world, you know, could not contain the things that Jesus did. So I've selected these seven. It's kind of the perfect number, you know, that sacred number. It, uh, it all tells you how we arrived at the estimate of Jesus that we arrived at. And then his conclusion is in the prologue, the first 18 verses. And it starts out, you recall, I don't, it's always good to keep reminding ourselves of these things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What an accent. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being. There's a lot more in between, but it gets down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how did they get there? Well, this is the first sign that John records. And uh, there were a whole bunch that he did not record. So let's read this chapter. It's uh, In some ways, it's very pedestrian. I mean, it's not a mega event. And yet it is a mega event. On the third day, after the events he had just discussed, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. That elevates its importance when mom's there. The mother, according to the flesh, she was there. Jesus was also invited. It was not just Jesus and his disciples also. They were all at the wedding. And then, uh-oh, this was a big uh-oh in that time. A big uh-oh. There were too many people. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus comes to him on the QT and whispers in his ear, Son, they're out of wine. This, according to the customs of the day, was a no-no. This couldn't happen, but it did happen. And Jesus said to her, now get this, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. 
woman, who answers his mother like that? If my mother had come to me, I would never have said, woman. Now, I've said that to Aussie a couple of times. <laughs> woman, what do you... Well, I'm kidding. Well, not, not entirely. <laughs> and I will tell you what she's told me. Stick it in your ear, Bob. Then he said, what have I to do with you? Boy, that all sounds cold, doesn't it? Really frosty. And then he adds, a lot of this is coded. We've got to get between the lines. My hour has not yet come. Then his mother seems to accede to all of that without objection. She says to the servants who are not nearby, you can almost hear it. Whatever he says to you, do it. She knew of son. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Not anything we have at our weddings. They contained 20 or 30 gallons each. A lot of water. She, Jesus said to them, fill the water parts with water. Just plain water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, nobody else is observing this except the servants. Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. The head waiter tasted it. The water which had become wine. He didn't know that it where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and says, Hey, bud, this is an amazing deal. I mean, every man serves the good wine at first. And when men have drunk freely, which they did at these weddings, then they bring out that which is poor in quality. Their tastes are a little dulled by this time. But man, you've kept the good wine till now. This is superior. Now this was the beginning of his signs, which Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, small town, no big deal. All of this was out of the way, way out of the way. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, some of our spiritual apathy, mine and yours and everybody, some of our lethargy spiritually arises from what I would call a mean or low view of Christ. It's something we always battle. It's, it's so easy in the Christian life. It's so easy in our churches, not the first time you've heard this from me, to have a low view of Christ. But that's so bad. The more he is magnified in this eyes, the more the world is minimized. The smaller he is in our eyes of faith, the more important other things become to us. Therefore, distortion and downgrading of him lowers our enthusiasm for serving him. That's one reason I love John, because John just elevates the whole person of Christ. The bigger he gets, the bigger serving him gets. So the events that's transpired on that day in Cana, they just resound today with timely import. There's another thing that over my thousand years in this church, you've heard me say again and again, 
you'll never understand my teaching. Most of you do. You'll never understand my teaching and approach to the Bible unless you understand this. When I look at things through the scripture, a narrative like this, it's history, but it's far more than that. I look at it and I say, what's the timeless import? Because it all percolates, it all pulsates with timelessness. There's the time bound. There's the historical detail. And those things are important, but they carry with them timelessness that we should look at. Well, that's what we're going to do. Now, the first points that I'm going to make are not necessarily the most important points on our way to understanding the, the greatness of Jesus. By his presence at this wedding, Jesus put his seal of approval on in the institution of marriage. I never think about that. I'm not going to visit an occasion knowingly. If I know what's up, he knew what was up. I'm not going to go there and by my presence put my stamp of approval on it unless I endorse it. Well, why is that important to mention? It's not the most important thing by any stretch in this passage. But, and mass marriage can be disparaged and disused and disallowed as it has been in many ages. First Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, the apostle Paul warned that up ahead are days when people are going, among other things, they're going to forbid marriage, cultic things, and say it's a bad thing. That's contrary to the word of God. God ordained the institution of marriage and we should honor it and it should always be allowed. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church permits the marriage of priests and it has very ill effects as you probably noticed. And it can make the priesthood a haven for those with homosexual leanings. In fact, there is one seminary, at least one, in their orbit that was notable for that, just really notable. You just can't go around and violate the institutions that God has put in place without getting ill effects. It can be defiled and destroyed by infidelity. Marriage is a wonderful thing, a wonderful institution, but it can be really messed up. It can be discarded by desertion or unbiblical divorce. By his sanction of this wedding, Jesus distances himself from those who would disparage marriage. I want to make a second point. By his presence on this festive occasion, seems like a weird point I'm about to make, but it is an important point. He said it was okay to laugh. Now, where the heck is that in this passage? Well, before I come directly to that, I won't say there are a lot. There are some who go to excess, but there, there are Christians in various churches and kind of little cult-like sects. They're just like Nazis. And laughter seems like it's not permitted. Jesus sanctified joy and cheerfulness by his presence. Those weddings, they, uh, they weren't sour and dour. You ever seen Jewish, meeting, Jewish music? You go to Israel, 
And here's an event. We've seen many of them being over there. And here they are running around in circles. I mean, it's a joy to be around. And it's a wonderful thing to see Jewish festivity when they're happy. Wonderful thing. And they were happy. This was a cheerful occasion. Laughter is okay. Be joyful. Be festive. To have peppy music, folk dancing, and abounding cheer. You know, this is a little bit off page, but I would call attention to, attention to it. Uh, we've had, in the last half of my long ministry, a church culture. We've had a, a lot of people who are kind of against that. And uh, here we have, uh, we have drums. I don't like drums. Well, go to the Old Testament. Look at their music. Loud-sounding cymbals. It was joyous. It was Jewish. Now, everything can be overdone, and some things can be completely out of line, and we see it, and we, we know it. But uh, I always said, I'm not a musician. My wife is. Uh, my youngest daughter is. But uh, music, a lot of music. But uh, I personally... I always like music percussive. Bang! Don't make it. I was listening to a church. I won't go into that. I was listening to it on TV a while back, and I listened to that music, and I said, my gosh, that's so mournful. As we come to church and gather together, these occasions, there's room for festivity. There's room for cheerfulness and all of that. And it's not a place for mournfulness. A joy, and uh, you may disagree with me, but I like a little blast. I do. Uh, anyway, it's unlikely that Jesus would ever have graced this occasion with his presence had he disapproved, and unlikely that having become a guest, that he would sit off in a corner with his disciples like a Nazi and set out the celebration and convey, convey by his demeanor the impression of disapproval of events taking place it comes to the Christian life. The Christian life is characterized <coughs> by sobriety, yes, not solemnity. There is occasion for solemnity, like at a funeral. Christian life is to be a life of inner joy, not frivolity. Happiness jump-started by the Holy Spirit, not liquid and evil spirits. Happiness jump-started by the Spirit is, is heaven-approved, which brings us to verses 3 and 4 and moves us mainly into the most main line of the points I want to make. Verses 3 and 4. By his short response, some would say curt, his short response to Mary, woman, gunai, it implies something Mary needed to learn. She had a unique relationship with him being his human mother after the flesh. It implies there are no exceptions to approaching him in faith as sovereign Lord. Mary was very much the mother on this occasion. She had not transitioned out of that mode. She was unwittingly, she was a great and godly woman, but she was unwittingly a little bit presumptuous. She wrongly presumed she'd have to grow out of this that as his mother on the human side, 
she enjoyed by virtue of that close relationship a sort of favored status. Thus, she could approach him on this urgency. Say, son, 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 son. Thou what? She was saying, do your thing. She knew about all his signs and wonders. She knew all of that. She knew that he was the promised Messiah. She knew what others didn't know. And so she was telling, now's the time, son. Get on it. They're out of wine. This is a terrible embarrassment to this family. Mary's intentions were wonderful. They were all good. But she was she was wrong. She had to get past this notion that because he was her son after the flesh, that she had a different status, a different standing. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside. Uh, Things were so intense, they were so crazy around him with his signs and wonders that they were a little bit afraid for his mental stability. I mean, have you ever gotten there? They were seeking to speak to him. They couldn't even get to him. Someone said to him, Lord, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Jesus never loses a teachable moment. So he wanted to teach everybody, including his mothers and his brothers, who were not even believing at that time. Jesus answered the one who was telling him, and he said, Who is my mother and my brothers? Who are my brothers? Go ahead. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, like right here, he said, Behold, these are my mother and my brothers. All of these have that same level of relationship with me. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, some of his brothers were unbelievers. They didn't have any special relationship to him, nor did his mother. This point, I'm going to tell you who my mother and my brothers are. They are those who in faith do the will of my father who is in heaven. There you are. Mary needed to get that because she was his mother after the flesh. She needed to transition and understand that she was just another disciple. The Roman Catholic Church needs to understand that also. Just another disciple. Very, very important. So this is why Jesus said to her, Guna, woman, She thought she could prevail upon him to do her bidding because, after all, she was his mom after the flesh. Getting past this notion was not easy for her, as we saw there, Matthew 12. Hence, Jesus carefully. Sometimes I say things that are so stupid, and I say, what did I just say? Idiot, you better go back and unwind that. Jesus, of course, never did that. Everything that he said, he said for a reason. Hence his carefully chosen title. Not mother, no, woman, guna. In English, it sounds cold and it jars us. And it's probably jarred you as you've read that. Actually, in ancient usage, this appellative woman 
approximates in our language the word lady. Kind of like lady back off. Still, someone might object, understandably. Is even that any way for a son to speak to his mother? In this case, in this unique case, yes. For it was meant to surprise Mary, to back her off a bit and wake, awaken her to the disillusion of her maternal role. She's no longer mom. That's in the past. Now as he prepares to embark on his messianic mission, she must now see him no longer as her son, but God's son after the spirit. Therefore, let her relationship to him, Jesus is saying, be on exactly the same footing as his disciples. He will no longer follow her wishes as his earthly mother. There was a time he did that. She must now join in following him like all the rest of the disciples. She's not the queen of heaven. Now listen carefully. Faith, not maternity, is the bond that binds one to him now, he was saying. Righteousness. Righteousness, doing the will of the Father, is the badge of relationship hereafter, not physical generation. Motherhood no longer has any bonding, he was saying this, or redeeming value. It imparts no special favor or standing. Listen up. Everybody listen up. Faith, not maternity, is the bond that binds one to him. Faith in him is the price of admission for Mary and everyone else. If Mary hadn't gotten past that, that would have been fatal. Listen, I'm going to extend that principle. No church affiliation. No parental heritage. My daddy, I talked to a lady one time at my first church. Talked to her about Christ and she thought that because her, I don't remember the relationships, she cited me a long legacy. My daddy was a preacher, my uncle was a missionary and three others were this, that and the other. Therefore, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. You're not okay. No church affiliation. Down in the South, you see it everywhere, but down in the South, you try to talk to somebody about Christ, they'll say, I'm a Baptist. Well, forget that. That doesn't accomplish a thing. You're a Baptist. Your daddy was a preacher. Your mother was a missionary. You know, all that stuff. No parental hair, no baptism. Well, preacher, I was baptized when I was eight years old. So, no sacraments. Salvation. Salvation. Everyone in this room hear me. May not get past the ears, but you hear me. Salvation, knowing God, justification before God is strictly and only by God's grace. Through faith alone in Jesus the Savior. Ephesians 4.8. I think they'll pop it up. Uh, oh, I screwed it up. My fault. My bad. I want to tell you, these guys work up here. Sometimes they get blamed for things that belong to me. Ephesians 2.8. That was mine. Will you forgive me? They will, I think. 
I've had this Bible for 118 years, and it still doesn't want to do what I tell it to do. Get to Ephesians 2.8. It should just obey me, voice commands. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. Look there quicker than I am. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not through a church. Not through baptism. Not through your family spiritual legacy. Not through any kind of affiliation. Nobody in this room or in any church body comes to know God, is saved, is justified by any institutional affiliation, whatever. Don't anybody say, well, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Baptist. And you're lost if you don't know Jesus Christ. Mary came to know her son as the Savior of the very Son. By grace, God's grace, his sheer unmerited favor through faith in him. Salvation is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, strictly. Well, faith-driven obedience is proof of purchase. There is no respect of persons when it comes to the Lord Jesus. Equal opportunity for all, special exemptions for none. That's the message in that word, guna. This lesson strikes at the heart of every form of religious presumption. Every form of presumption that banks on exemption from that condition under the illusion of some kind of personal merit or privileged standing on some basis besides humble trust in and submission to the claims of Jesus Christ. We're at the heartland right now. You could be you could be in this church from now till the time hell freezes over. You could be here in every Sunday, every Bible study, every prayer meeting. <clears throat> Whatever. You are still lost if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're saved by his grace, nothing by your merit. If anyone on planet earth could ever have laid claims to exemption from that condition, that would have been the Virgin Mary who was not. And she was a virgin when she had Jesus. Brings us to verses 4 and 5. By his response to Mary's urging his intervention, Jesus informs her who sets the agenda. He informs her, as she needed to be informed, who's the shot caller in his earthly mission. The phrase so ambiguous to us, what to you and to me, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? It occurs several times in the Bible. Somebody talking to another person, the person will say, what to you and to me? We don't use that phraseology. But it occurs somewhat frequently in biblical literature. In all cases, it indicates some kind of disjunction or disparity in thought and action between one person and another. In effect, the question serves to affirm what what he might have said in our way of speaking is lady we're not on the same page we too are not on the same wavelength well the narrative is so comparison that we must infer the problem her anticipation I'm skipping over some stuff for the sake of time Mary had an anticipation. She, she thought she was right, but she was a little bit wrong. 
she was thinking something big was in the offing. It was heightened by the arrival of Jesus, who had been duly invited. The report of events surrounding his baptism, the announcement of John the Baptist, behold, the, the Lamb of God, and now the reports of his newly recruited disciples. Her woman's, in, you never underestimate a woman's intuition. Mary was full of it. Her woman's intuition senses a point of new departure. She's right. And resourceful as she was, she perhaps saw in this occasion, she saw an opportunity. Oh, son, it's here. An opportunity for him to seize the moment for some spectacular display that would inaugurate his messianic claim. I can almost see her. Oh, son, it's here. This is the occasion. They're out of wine. Do your thing. I think Mary's eagerness for this moment might have been heightened by her long-endured stigma stemming from the suspicious nature of his birth. Now at last, Jesus might do something. Oh, please, son. Do something that would establish his identity and vindicate her relationship in that whole area. Her intentions were honorable. They were well-meaning. Her aspirations were spiritual and high-minded. Her approach was unwittingly presumptuous. Here's her mistake. She was telling her Lord, he's not her son, her Lord. She was telling him how to do his business and when to do it. Her mistake reminds us of Isaiah 55, 8. You know what it says? What sir you do? The Lord says, and we've all got to remember, not just Mary. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Or your timing is not necessarily my timing. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. In walking with God, we've all got to remember that at all times. We have our urgencies. Our urgencies are not necessarily the Lord's urgencies. Our timing is not necessarily his timing. Our ways are not necessarily his ways. And so we've got to be humble. Mary was not a proud human being. She just thought she saw something so clearly, as we do sometimes. And we kind of get ourselves in the Lord's way. This was neither the time nor the place for Jesus to present himself publicly as the Messiah. He changes the water to wine and here I am, I'm the Messiah, all of you believe. Wasn't his way, wasn't his time. But there was a need and he met it. Her role was not to give him his cues. That's what Jesus is telling her. So what's the lesson here? It's a lesson in discipleship. Through Mary, we are reminded how easy it is. I'm reminded how common it is for us to get on the wrong page when we're into the wrong sheet of music. We get it in our heads, don't we? That God has to do certain things a certain way. We get a paradigm or a model in our minds. We almost command him in our prayers. Lord, do this. I've seen preachers get up and they have a vision. They have their own preacher's church vision. Get up. God, you're a God we can trust. And they come just this short of saying, I command you this day to do this. Uh-uh, we don't go there. We, in effect, try to put God on the spot in the good name of faith, even when he's made no such promise. 
and we virtually demand he perform in a certain way. Well, Mary was not there, but she was close to it. Our business is not to set his agenda, not to give the Lord his cues, but to follow his leading. Follow, follow, don't get ahead of him. Not to tell our Lord when and how to act, but to wait on him to act and let him decide the best way. Well, in verses 6 through 10, by his action, he stresses that the source of evil is on the inside of man, not the outside. What am I talking about? Have you ever had trouble with this particular parable? Uh, Not parable, this miracle, this sign. A lot of people have. I I had a colleague I taught with for years in seminary. In fact, he was a good man, a very good man, but he was a mistaken man. He was convinced that in this miracle, this was not wine. This was grape juice. Jesus would never have made real wine and tempt these people to excess, which they tempted to go to at these ways. He he wouldn't have done that. This is grape juice. And he wrote that in a book. I say he was a good man. I mean, like me, he made a mistake once. I made a mistake once. I thought I was wrong and wasn't. (laughs) Oh, ha, ha, that was so funny. (laughs) So funny. I see you, Christy. My my daughter, oh, they're rolling her eyes. (laughs) Oh, Dad, quit trying to be funny. It is an effort on my part. Anyway, that's a wrong view. Let Let me say this. I do not drink. I've never had a drink in my life except twice. Both were accidental. Once when I was five years old, a neighbor just wanted to give me a teaspoon of beer. And uh, it tastes like dishwater, as I recall. Another time I was on a ship, a Greek ship, cruise ship. And I had all these, hello, boy from West Virginia. I didn't know what all these doodaddles were out in front of me. Here was a little old glass over there. And I was sitting there waiting for things to happen. I just grabbed whoop, over the halfway down like to burnt my guts out. That's all sum total of my experience with alcohol. So I'm not carrying a brief for anybody. I don't have an axe to grind. Drinking wine is all through the Bible, but drinking alcoholic beverages always, always has this modesty principle behind it, moderate amounts. It's not a sin. That which corrupts us is on the inside. Excess is on the inside of us. Jesus made wine. Oinos is oinos. That's the word. Sometimes in ancient times, a lot of times, they did cut it with a certain amount of water. This was cut with water, I guess. And Jesus spoke, and that water became the best wine available on the planet. And the servants took it in. And the master, the banquet master says, my, my, you've been holding out on us. This is the best wine. Jesus is not responsible for my excesses or your excesses. God made wine and wine is good. In moderation. Well, then, Jim, why are you a teetotaler? Because my grandmother, my grandfather, who was not a good man, who looked a whole lot like me, that's scary. My grandfather was 
an alcoholic and kind of mean. And uh, how do I know if I drink that stuff that I won't get the taste for it and go to excess? And then people don't expect me to be a drinker. You might be something else. It doesn't matter to me. I could if I wanted to. But I just choose not to. But the problem of evil resides inside here. It's not on the outside. So if that liberates you, let it liberate you. Now, though this, through this astounding miracle, Jesus sent a message, a transcendent spiritual message for all time. John notes that in doing this sign, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does he mean by manifested his glory? What I read to you at first, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory not unlike. It's the idea of the only begotten, the very son of the father, one bearing the impress of divine character, full of grace and truth. This, this sign bore the signature of divine power, and the character of God himself. John's wording is very significant. This miracle was the first quiet sign to his disciples and a few servants, and now to all who have ears to hear that Jesus is the word God made flesh. And all those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it's a glimmer of what John and the apostles concluded. It's expressed in his prologue this sign is a wake-up call it seizes my attention it tells me we have been visited by a transcendent human being transcendent being who deserves our worship as a sign it highlights his grace here we see his compassion and his generosity with his friends on lavish display mary's response to jesus rebuff surprises us what appears to be a refusal to act, notice, she seems to construe as a readiness to rectify the situation. She knew him. Whatever he says for you to do, do it. She knew her son. Jesus, she understood, had not refused to intervene in this extremity of his friends. He had what he had rejected was seizing the occasion as a public opportunity to announce and verify his messianic claims by exercising of his divine power. That was not his way, not the way he was going to handle it. Though Jesus rebuffed her agenda and she righteously accepted his reproof, she knew his character, she knew his compassion and mercy, as well as his heavenly origin and attributes. She knew he was not, not only able somehow to save the situation, she knew in her heart he was willing. She knew he would care. And in that confidence, she simply humbly backed off and said to the servant standing by, whatever he tells you, do it. She knew he would act. She didn't know how. She understood him that well. And whatever he did would be sufficient for that situation. She just left the matter in his hands, knowing from his character that her concern was shared. That's all that mattered. Whatever he did about it, he would do something. It would be fitting. She trusted him to do whatever is right. Well, that's where we need to be.
sometimes we pray, sometimes we go to the Lord and we're kind of insistent, Lord, you've got to do something. Lord, you've got to save my job. Lord, I need to get well. Lord, I want that house. Lord, I want this, I want that. Will you please do it? And we kind of put him on the spot. He doesn't always intervene in the way, that, but we've got to step back and say, he cares. See, this is what I know and what you need to know. There's a lot of stuff passes in front of all of us, and some of you sitting here is every Sunday. You've got a lot of stuff on your plate, a lot of heavy burdens, just as I have. All I need to know is who he is and what he's able to do and know that he cares. And he will do whatever needs to be done in the right way at the right time. And what needs to be done sometimes may be nothing. What needs to be done sometimes is let it lie. And later on, as time works out, and time may not be five minutes, maybe five years, maybe 20 years. Somewhere down the line, we will see and we'll say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't do that. Now, I see. I see it worked out so much better the way you have ordained it because he cares. But we know his ability. We know his sufficiency. We know his, his compassion. And we know his mercy. We know his sympathy. Let's keep all of that in mind. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't if you haven't received him, if you don't know him, well, you're, you're like Jesus' brothers who came with Mary in John 12. You may be his brothers after the flesh, but you're lost, and you won't be saved. You won't be justified before God until you take the bull by the horns and you say yes to Jesus. You need to say yes. Otherwise, you're lost. And while you're lost, by the way, remember, your meter is running. Tick, 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 tick. Heart attack five seconds away. Stroke, tick, tick, tick. It's been time. It's time for you to say yes before God says no. Receive him. Just like getting married, say yes. <laughs> say yes. I remember when I did that, it was all over. <laughs> say yes. Click, handcuff here. Click, handcuff there. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Click. Aussie's dad once said, ain't nobody putting a ball and chain on me. Well, somebody put a ball and chain on me. Both ankles, both ankles. Say yes. Let Christ put a ball and chain on you. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for the character and the power and the ability, the sympathy, compassion that you reveal. Thank you for the way you teach us. Even your own mother after the flesh, you had to teach her. 
And she humbly, in a godly way, accepted that. Lord, there's some here who need to be taught that you are God in the flesh. You are the Savior of the world, and we pray that you may teach their hearts before it is too late. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.